Today in Flex in the City, we talk to Catherine Battisel, the Managing Director of the Fund Board's Council, as she describes how good governance can stimulate investor trust in asset management. All that happening right now in Flex and the City. Hello, everybody. This is Rachel Treese for Flex and the City. And today I'm absolutely thrilled to have Catherine Battersill with me today. And Catherine is the managing director of a very important entity, in my opinion, called Fund Boards Council. And she's the managing director. Catherine, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Rachel. I'm I'm very pleased to be here. I've enjoyed listening to a, a good many of these podcasts before now. So I'm really honoured to be asked. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. So, so love to know a little bit about you and, and who you are and, and your journey in founding and being the managing director of, of Fun Board Council. Yes, thank you. Well, I, um, I'm the child of fairly peripatetic parents, so I spent a lot of my childhood traveling around. And I think that that sort of imbued in me a, a love of, of languages. Um, so I had no hesitation whatsoever about what I was going to do with my life. I was going to study languages at university. And then there was no doubt in my mind, in my young mind, at least, that I was going to have a glittering career as a uh, as a diplomat and a, or a foreign correspondent traveling the world. And I managed the languages degree, but I failed spectacularly at the other two. <laughs> so I'm, I'm still waiting for that tap on the shoulder from the foreign office or the BBC. But languages, all joking apart, did sort of lend, uh, lead me into asset management um, in a funny sort of way. I, I started off during my degree course, actually doing some work for a a financial PR agency um, in Paris. And I was translating annual reports and corporate statements from French to English. And and, and whilst this might put off a lot of people from the industry, I actually really loved reading about economics and and the business and, Mm. and the impact that it had on people's money. And I suppose... I suppose that interest never really left me. And so as soon as I could, I got into the corporate, into corporate communications um, in the financial right. services industry with Lloyd's TSB, as it was in those days, okay. and then and then on to Insight Investment, both of which taught me a great deal about financial services and then latterly asset management uh, and about its challenges. And, and particularly one thing that struck me when I came into the industry was about how poorly understood and poorly regarded perhaps amongst my peers, certainly, and amongst sort of the wider public in general, our industry was, it was just, you know, it was, there were so many headlines about, you know, negative stories uh, about uh, investment generally and financial services industry more broadly. And certainly when I talked to my peers, that sort of really struck me that people weren't thinking about investing their money. They weren't thinking about what to do it. If anything, they were thinking about possibly buying a house, but largely just putting their money in cash. And, and, and that really struck me. And that stayed with me throughout my, my career. I then got itchy feet and realized that I hadn't really achieved the one other thing that I wanted to do, which was, was to work and live abroad again. And so I had an opportunity to go on holiday to Hong Kong and fell in love with the place, just loved the energy and the dynamism of Hong Kong and, and Asia more generally. And so when I came home from that holiday, I, I sort of networked relentlessly um, and, and badgered people until a, a very generous gentleman at HSBC agreed to give me a, a three-month contract and allow me a chance to go over there and, and get a work visa and and, and sort of uh, try my luck in, in, in Asia. And I stayed with HSBC sort of well past the end of the contract, but then had an amazing opportunity to join a Canadian life insurance company called Manulife, who needed someone at the time to help them with sort of issues management and, and crisis communications, because the Asia division had just taken on the sponsorship of the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games. And as you may recall, like a lot of sporting events, it was a bit of a lightning rod for activists and NGOs 
who quite understandably wanted to, to use the Games as an opportunity to raise awareness of their particular causes. And so global sponsors such as us were, were naturally a target. And because we were such a small team and supported very much by colleagues in North America who had experience of previous Olympic Games, we covered everything from you know, dealing with celebrities, picketing our offices, to handling security uh, on the ground during the Games in Beijing. And, and I could never have expected to have had that opportunity at all. But uh, So I may not have got that, that tap on the shoulder from the foreign office that I talked about earlier on but I did yes. find myself in amongst you know security services operatives and things like that in Beijing which was a which was a fascinating experience and during the course of my work there just to, to sort of wrap up I spent a lot of time with colleagues in investment division and they were at the very early stages of building out an institutional asset management business across Asia and needed help with their marketing and and there were two things at the time, and I guess this is what comes on, this is what's sort of pertinent to our discussion here about leadership. There were two things at the time there that really made me want to be a part of that. And the first was the chance to be really entrepreneurial, the chance to be at the start of something, to be there right when something is being built and to see how it grows and develops and contribute to that. And the second was the leader at the time, a, a gentleman called Michael Domamuth, who is, who is, I believe, is still the president of Asia there, right. was someone for whom I had huge respect and who I, I knew, with whom I knew I could work very well. And, and he really inspired me. He saw the opportunity for the organization. He knew the kind of skills and the people that he wanted to have in that organization. And, you know, I was very proud that he kind of saw something in me that he felt could contribute. And he gave me the confidence to be able to do that. When they asked me to lead that marketing effort in, in Asia, I didn't hesitate. And, and I spent a decade or so there and then in the UK uh, with them. And aside from that, a sort of brief spell in pensions, which gave me a very interesting insight into investment from another perspective, I guess. And when it was, you know, then I think really my heart was was really still in asset management. And so when I met Shiv Taneja, who's the CEO of Funds Board Council, Fund Board Council, I was really taken back to those early days in Asia when I was inspired by those two things that I was just talking about earlier, that chance to be entrepreneurial, that chance to be at the start of something and help build something. And, and secondly, that chance to work with, and I know he'll be embarrassed when he hears this, but, but someone who's very inspiring, who had energy and and, and drive and, and ambition. And it was just too good an opportunity to miss. And so, you know, four years on, here we are, Fund Boards Council is, is growing fast. It's doing some really interesting and I hope impactful work in the industry in the field of fund governance, not only in the UK, but also in Ireland and, and Luxembourg. And I'm, I'm really glad I made the decision that I did. Very good. So I've got a few more questions about Fund Board Council, but before I move on to that, just to, I'm just curious, with, with, with Shiv and Michael, what was it about their leadership? If you were to bottom line, what it what it was about is about both of them that makes them great leaders. I think it's it's. I would characterize it in sort of three main things. So I think there's three really important aspects to leadership, which I've drawn from them and from other people that I've worked from worked with in the industry. But I think the, the three common things that bind all of them are are culture, direction, and motivation. So the primary job of a leader, in my view, is to create the culture where people can thrive, where they can do their best work, they can deliver for the organization and, and for their stakeholders. And for me personally, that's about creating an environment where people don't fear failure. They are willing to try new things. They're willing to put their hand up when they spot something that's not working well, that they create an environment that recognizes differences in background, in skills, in views, and it values those differences. You know, it, it sees that as a positive thing and it, and it wants to draw on those differences and use them to the advantage of the group. 
And also, I think finally, an environment that where robust challenge and health and strong discussion is a positive thing, is something that energises the group. It's a positive experience. It energises individuals, it energises teams, it doesn't demoralise them. And I think it's it's a tricky thing to get that balance right, to, to, to have some uh, an environment. And we see it a lot in boardrooms where, you know, you are there because you need to be challenging the status quo. You need to be having those robust discussions. But in a way, that galvanizes the group, that energizes people. And I think that's a really important and difficult skill. The second one I mentioned was around direction. I think I think being clear about where an organization is going and what it's trying to do and being able to articulate that is a really important thing in a, in a leader. So that when change, as it invariably does, when change comes, you know, being able to explain that clearly to people, have people understand the context to it and the role that they play in contributing to the organization and contributing to success, contributing to the culture that there is in the organization, uh, being able to articulate how you know when you're going to be successful. I think that sense of being very clear and focused on direction is, is a vitally important part. And, and then just finally, I'll, I'll sort of wrap it up in a rather nebulous term of motivation. But, you know, someone once said, said of me that I was relentlessly positive, and I suspect they probably meant annoyingly so. But I, I recognise in myself sort of energy and enthusiasm for my work. And, and I think that's that's certainly carried through, carried me through in my career when when things have been difficult. And I think I've sort of seen that in the leaders that have inspired me, that they, you know, they create an environment where people are inspired enough to bring their own energy and enthusiasm to the table. You know, they feel empowered to add value. They find solutions. They're, they're getting to the heart of what motivates a team and how you keep them motivated. And, and I think good leaders spend a lot of time thinking about that. And that's really important. And of course, that brings us, you know, right back to where we started, Rachel, which is around the importance of the culture and the tone that you set as a leader. Absolutely. So that gives me a really nice segue to my next question. You, know, you, you are incredibly motivating and inspiring. So, so tell me about the purpose of the Fund, Fund Boards Council. What is it that, that you're so passionate about, Catherine? So I think Fund Boards Council was originally set up because, you know, there was a lot of challenges in the in governance in the fund industry, uh, challenges that we're all very well aware of around, you know, uh, not enough investor trust in, in our industry, investors feeling that they weren't getting good value from our industry, that there was a lack of transparency, and just generally the level of governance when it comes to funds particularly just wasn't where, where it needed to be. And so, you know, regulators across various markets have taken different steps to, to, to try and address these challenges. These are not challenges solely for the UK. Um, we've seen regulators in Ireland and Luxembourg trying to do very similar similar things to some degree. And one of the things certainly for the UK and, and has been in, in, in Ireland and Luxembourg was the, was the need to have you know dedicated boards of people who were responsible for overseeing these fund ranges ensuring that there was sort of adequate transparency that investors knew what they were going to be uh, yeah. what they what they were buying was going to do what it said it would do and and that they were getting value for what they were investing in um and so fund board council was really set up to support that that new group or that sort of expanding group that developing group of directors for many of whom this was a new role you know some in some cases these boards didn't exist before it was an evolution of internal management committees being moved into 
to, you know, out into the sunlight and 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 the scrutiny that that would inevitably involve on these directors. So these these people were new in role. They were having to hire independent directors from outside of the organisation for whom also this this may be this may be quite new. And we really wanted to be there to support them. We really wanted to be there to we're established really to support them with access to insights from their peers in the industry. We provide them with access to experts in particular aspects of fund governance. We will help them go in and think about the way that they're approaching certain aspects of governance, whether it's product governance or operations governance or distribution. And we also work very closely with them on how they operate. So what we call fund board effectiveness, but which is really just looking about how do you make sure that when you bring this group of people together, that you're creating the culture, you're creating the environment that, that really helps them to be as effective as they possibly can be. And so that's another very important aspect of our work. And we do a lot of research in the industry, trying to understand what the key challenges are with the aim that we can then provide our members and asset management firms in the industry with a clear sense of some considerations that they can take back to their own organization based on what's happening out there in the industry, what good practice is out there take away those considerations and think about them in the context of their own organizations. These organizations are all very different. They all have their own different dynamics, but there are some aspects of good governance that are out there for fund boards that we hope we can bring to bear on a lot of the discussions that our member firms are having. Yeah, I dislike the term soft skills, but if you were to sort of articulate what you think are the soft skills or leadership skills that those board members need to develop or or embrace, what would you say those are, Catherine? And there's a lot of very important skills and, and, and a lot of it is about the ability to be able to tease out the things that you need to know, knowing what are the right questions to ask, being able to scrutinize data that you're presented with and, and be able to tease out information, but be able to ask it in a way that is going to fit the environment well, that is going to work well in the context of the organization. For executive directors, you know, they have an additional challenge in that when they walk into the room, uh, the boardroom, they are taking off their executive hat and they are going in there as a director of the business. And so um, that brings its own challenges too. And so I think the overarching skill is around self-awareness, knowing how you best operate and best function, what kind of things make you anxious in a boardroom, what kind of things make you you know, defensive in a boardroom, for example. I think knowing, knowing those kind of things well enable you then to, to operate as effectively as you possibly can in the boardroom. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely hearing self-awareness and curiosity. Mm, yes. Safe space um, are probably the, some of the three most important things. As two females on the, this podcast, we obviously hear a lot about diversity in organisations, but we also hear about diversity on, on boards. And I, I appreciate that sometimes there are forced mandates. So I'd really love to have your perspective, Catherine, on what a truly diverse board is and how that can help with standards in governance. Mm. You're absolutely right. There's a there's there's a lot of talk in the industry generally, but certainly when it comes to fund boards about the need for greater diversity. And it's very easy to think about that diversity in terms of you know sort of gender diversity or ethnic diversity. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a there's certainly a lot of discussions that we have with with fund boards where it's around diversity of thought. So we want people from diverse backgrounds. Absolutely because they bring diverse experiences, diverse skills and diverse viewpoints. And that is always an important contributing factor to a really healthy 
robust discussion and and to delivering that kind of challenge that the boards need to deliver uh, as we talked about earlier so i i think that's a very i think that's a very healthy perspective to have that we want to get as broad a range of people we also have to recognize that you know there are certain skill sets the board need to have whether it's a functional skill set or certain experience so we can't you know it, you can't get a, a sort of broad range of people from outside the industry necessarily yet, because there are certain te- technical skills that these boards undoubtedly need to have. And, and some asset management experience, I think, is, re- is required for a lot of these people. We may, as boards grow and develop and get more comfortable with the idea of having independent executives from, from a diverse range of backgrounds, um, then I think that might change over time. But certainly initially, we've, you know, we've needed to have people from within the industry, I think, who can, who can get these boards established and up and running well. And so, you know, that diversity of thought has not yet come from outside the industry, but I think boards recognize that within the industry itself, they need to, they need to try and get as diverse a range of, of backgrounds and skills. I, I think one of the challenges is that, you know, and certainly we see it when we're doing our, um, uh, we do a lot of work around recruiting independent directors. And we yes. certainly see this is that, is that, you know, in order to get a good pool of diverse candidates, and that's diversity of background and experience, but it's also, as we talked about earlier, the diversity of, of uh, gender diversity, ethnic diversity that we all recognize needs to happen on, on boards. In order to do that, you really need to have uh, you know, people up and coming through the ranks of organizations who bring that diversity. And so it's not just about what we can do at board level to uh, improve diversity, although a lot of good work is happening in that area. It's also about how can we identify and support people through the organization, you know, attract them to the industry, first of all, because that's a challenge in itself. How do you attract sort of young talent into the industry? Um, and then, and when people are in, how do we keep them? How do we, what lifestyle factors do we need? to consider what what can we do as an industry to 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 keep the this talent in so that when they are at the point where um they're thinking about board roles or they're wanting to put their hand up for a, for a board um position that we've got a really rich pool of, of people to draw upon and i think that's going to be a key consideration for the industry um for quite some time i couldn't agree more getting that pipeline built up is is going to be critical for the industry so so that leads me to the question you, you know you're an ex-marketeer um if you were in charge, Catherine, of the whole of the financial services industry, what would you do differently? How would you rebrand it? <laughs> what an <laughs> awesome responsibility you've just tasked me with. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I go back to this point about trust. I, I, I think... Um, I still continue to be astonished. I said, you know, when I started my my work in the industry many years ago, I was surprised at how few of my peers really thought about where they were going to put their money, when, where they, how they're going to save their money, certainly how they were going to invest it. And I still continue to be surprised even now at friends of mine and, and people I talk to in the industry who've been very, outside of the industry, sorry, who've been very successful in their own work and, you know, but who still sort of say, and we hear it a lot, you know, I'm putting my money in cash or I'm, I'm going to put it in property, my home is my pension, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and don't really think about asset management, or if they do, the sort of negative comments, well, I've heard a lot about, you know, scandals in the asset management industry, and I'm not really sure, you know, that I'm not really sure I understand it enough to be able to put my money in there. And so I think we still have a lot to do to one, build that understanding and help people understand what they're investing in, and what it's going to do for them, and crucially, what it's not going to do. And then secondly, to build the trust that when we say 
you're going to be investing in this fund and this is what it's going to do, that it does that. And there's been huge strides forwards. You know, no one in the industry doesn't think this is important. I think this is, you know, there's lots of work that's being done. But I think good governance and the area that I'm interested in and, and we're interested in at Fund Boards Council is absolutely crucial to that. So it's how do we oversee these the fund ranges so that we know that they are being overseen effectively, that they are doing what they say they are doing. When people buy into them, they're getting what they're expecting. And then that we're transparent with people and that they feel that they're getting good value. And that all goes to the heart of good governance. So I think being us being able to articulate that better, articulate that in a way that people understand, if we can get that right, then that will be a real game changer. Great stuff. So, so Catherine, when you're not busy working on Fun Boards Council, what else are you doing outside in, in the other part of your life? What are some of the things that you're passionate about or get involved in? Or Well, I am mother to two uh, young daughters who are the most exhausting, but also the most inspiring. Uh, and, and, and how old are they, if I may ask? Uh, they are nine and 11. And, Ooh, very um, exhausting. And- they are exhausting, but wonderful. And I, you know, I, I'm genuinely fascinated about how their education, you know, how the world has changed in terms of their education. So I find it endlessly fascinating kind of sitting with them while they're doing their homework and understanding about, you know, they're taught about things like growth mindset and and all of these kind of, you know, a lot more to think about their mental health and that kind of thing, which I find fascinating. It's very different to certainly my school days. And I suspect a lot of people of my generation just, you know, weren't educated in that way. So I find I spend quite a lot of time with them and I, I, you know, I love just spending time with them and understanding a bit more about, uh, about that. I, um, when I get time away, I love to run. it clears my head. It gives me sort of a chance to to think about things and, and a fresh perspective on things. And I have a I'm a part of a small group of of friends who once a year go abroad and and uh, and run a race somewhere. Um, never particularly long necessarily, but we've done some really some really cool ones like in the Arctic Circle at midnight and and things oh, wow. like that. It's great fun. Um, and and you know that weekend away and and those friends and that 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 run. Um, always sort of invigorates me and, and and revives me and I sort of come back feeling feeling ready to take on whatever comes next so so running is is an important part of my life so it's all about perspective isn't it so there's that perspective you get from from the running so so I'm really curious if we were to invite your daughters 9 and 11 for a conversation about the wisdom and the perspective they would bring to financial services or fund boards council what what would they tell you what would be their wisdom be well, it's interesting that you asked that question. Their main interest at the moment, Rachel, is around uh, playing, probably like a lot of people their, their age, that playing computer games. So right. uh, so their main views on finance are largely focused around how many Robux they're going to get or how many V-Bucks they're going to get to play Fortnite. And it's a it's an endless source of frustration, I think, for, for my husband and I. They spend so much time doing that. Having said that, I do also think that because of the nature of some of these games, they spend a lot of time trading, thinking about value of the, that money what they're going to get for it, what they're, you know, how they're going to use it, that kind of thing. And so, you know, in a way that I don't think I ever did as a, as a child. And so I hope that because of that, they will possibly enter the working world as a lot more financially literate than, than perhaps I was and people of my generation were. 
whether or not we can translate that into, you know, the kind of assets of the future that we all talk about in investments, you know, sort of alternative assets and equities and bonds and whatever else might be, what might be the uh, the assets of the future, we'll, we'll have to see. But uh, I do hope that they will um, come into the, the, the world of work, you know, more financially literate. Um, and I hope that they'll think about investment management as a as a potential career choice. I, I spoke to a mum at school recently who has a daughter, um, a lot older than my my two, who are who is thinking about university, very keen on economics, hadn't wow. even thought about investment management as a possible career option. And we talked a lot about what motivates her outside of that. And she was sort of saying, oh, you know, she's really interested in sort of environmental and social issues. She's sort of quite um energized by what's happening, you know, with climate change and that kind of thing. But again, hadn't put that, hadn't connected that with investment management at all. And so I really hope that it goes back to that point earlier about being able to articulate what we do and the impact that our industry can have and, and the, you know, seeing money as a, as a force for good. I think if we can do that, we have actually a good chance of, of inspiring the younger generation to, to think about ours as, a, as, a, as an interesting career choice for, for the future. Great stuff. Catherine Battersell, Managing Director of Fund Boards Council. Thank you for being on Flex in the City and thank you for being an inspiring leader and a game changer in the fund industry. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rachel. You just listened to Flex in the City. Catch us on our next episode.